Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Chuck Cairns, the Dean and Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Drexel University College of Medicine. Dr. Cairns is a leader in emergency medicine and critical care research and brings significant experience in leadership roles at several other medical schools to his position. He was also the principal investigator for the National Collaborative for Biopreparedness, funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Safety. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, one of our values, we have six core values at Osmosis. One of them is start with the heart. So I just want to start out with kind of how are you doing during these very tumultuous times? Well, Rishi, thank you so much for asking. I mean, clearly these are tumultuous times and they're stressful times. And so one of the things I've been trying to do is just keep it all in perspective and context. You know, I've been through a lot of different challenges and a lot of different experiences and different positions. And uh, one thing that is clearly important is to just remain calm myself and keep the context because there are enough external factors that can really challenge us. So if we can at least control the internal ones, I think we're better positioned to move forward. Any advice on that and how you control those internal factors, either professional ones or, or personal ones, any advice that you can share and things that have worked for you? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones is just to keep it in context, not just professionally, but also personally. Whether we call that work-life balance or whether we just realize that many people are feeling the same thing. Many people are looking for sources of support and, and help and inspiration. And I think the last component would be look for those sources of inspiration and keep a positive, optimistic approach because we will get through this. And we'll do that by leaning on others and also by bringing others along. So many people will be looking to you on how you approach these things and your attitudes towards it. So be optimistic, put it in context, and bring others along while you have to lean on some at the same time. That might be a good segue for me to ask how you first got started in medicine and particularly emergency medicine and critical care. And who are those folks that you might have leaned on uh, early on in your career? You know, it's a great question. I really wanted to be a physicist and I wanted to be an astronomer. Then I spent a summer on a road crew in North Carolina and I was with a medical student. It was one of those jobs where you got to work for 10 hour days a week, which was a good summer job in those days. Uh, it was a pretty hot summer job. But the good news was I got to sit down and talk to medical students and there were some law students on the same program and really talk about their philosophy of life and what drove them to their professions. And after that summer, I really started taking medicine seriously as a career. I was a major in chemistry. I love physical chemistry. But as I got more and more experience with just what medicine could be and where it was going, and then frankly, I was involved a lot in research that I realized I could combine my interest in chemistry, combine those interests with research, but then see how it can really impact people. And so that's how I got into medicine. Got into emergency medicine and critical care following a similar pathway. Although in this case, I was doing research one summer with a colleague, same age as me, who had served as an EMT. And this was in the early days of EMTs and emergency medical services. And we started talking about the need for evidence-based emergency care and what we can do to save people's lives at that very early stage after injury or illness. And we started talking about how we could do things differently. And so we started thinking about how to do research and innovation. So now it all came complete to me, science 
and research and clinical care and then impact on real people. And that drove me to emergency medicine and the further extension of that into the hospital's critical care. So it really is all a continuum. And uh, I've really enjoyed integrating those issues across my career. And then at, at one point in your career, you got into leadership roles and how did that transition occur? Because I, I think that's a piece that a lot of people are curious about. How do you go from doing clinical medicine to an administrative role or a management role? Well, I really enjoyed my work in the emergency department. I got to meet people from a lot of different backgrounds, sometimes at the worst time of their life. And while we made a lot of important interventions and frankly saved some lives, I realized there were still some limitations, not only to my individual care and the evidence basis and the research I was doing, but also in terms of the systems of care and the systems of research and how do we best integrate education, training, research, and clinical care. And that kind of drove me to pursue leadership roles. And I started off with leadership roles in research, and then those led to leadership roles in clinical areas. And then as you combine those two in leadership roles in medicine, you know, I became a division chief and then a department chair and then a dean and then a senior vice president. And what happened during all those different transitions, the absolute approach and the philosophy and the interests were all there, just the scope and scale, of course, increased dramatically. So I think it's actually one way to not only integrate across missions, if you will, of education, training, research, and clinical care, but also across scope and scale of organizations. And so you're not only taking on the needs of your hospital or your department or even your medical school, but then the whole needs of a population. And in some cases, you know, states and even countries. Your titles shifted quickly, it sounds like. And so you had a, a pretty amazing chance to see the different types of roles and responsibilities that occur at, at the different levels of an organization, which is pretty awesome. I'm curious now in your role, you're at Drexel University, you've got an amazing background behind you. What are the things that you're most proud of that, that Drexel is doing at the moment? What I'm really proud of is just being able to lead a group of people who are totally committed to missions. We have students from a wide range of backgrounds, a really diverse range of backgrounds, who are committed to the care of people who frankly have been underserved by medicine. We also have scientists and researchers who are committed to taking new discoveries, new technologies, even new care models, and applying them to those same populations. So not only have they been underserved by healthcare, but they've been underrepresented in these innovations and in these amazing discoveries that we've had in medical science. And so being able to translate those discoveries into these populations is so rewarding because the impact is great. And then finally, we've really had some challenges at Drexel, as frankly, many medical schools have had with rapid changes in the healthcare system. And so being able to be agile and adaptive and embrace the community systems of care at the same time, we're embracing this community focus of education and research has really been rewarding. And I'm very pleased with how successful we've been in terms of doing that at Drexel. You, know, you talked about your team and how much you love working with your team. And you know, with COVID-19, I think it's made a lot of teams grow even tighter because there's been so much work that has had to happen. Do you mind just talking a little bit about some of the challenges that you've had to deal with at Drexel as COVID has hit? Well, one of the big challenges we have at Drexel is that we have a really large geographical footprint. So we have regional campuses in Philadelphia area and other parts of Pennsylvania and even New Jersey, but we also have a campus in California in the Bay Area with Kaiser Permanente. And so it's been an opportunity for us to think about how do we connect our geography across time and space? Well, with COVID, we couldn't do it physically. 
So we started doing it virtually. And I've been very proud of our team as our regional deans at these various campuses have connected with our leaders in research, our leaders in education, our leaders in clinical care, and really come together as a community. Because now we don't have to worry about the daily commutes in Philadelphia or the time that it would take to fly and stay on the West Coast. We can now all gather together uh, in this virtual world. And of course, we had to make many changes. You know, we had to accommodate how you become socially engaged over the internet and talk about how we enhance that experience for our students that still makes it real, even if it's virtual. And then finally, we had to think about what do we do next in terms of finding solutions and really making them geographically impactful? How do we take advantage of all these different perspectives and diversity of our faculty and students and trainees? And then how do we take on the big challenges? of our communities, because one thing that COVID has highlighted are the health inequities that exist across these populations and our opportunity, therefore, to have impact in our translation efforts. So that really has been an important lesson, but also an important strength for Drexel. You know, I didn't realize the connection with Kaiser in Northern California, and actually I'm a Kaiser patient or was a Kaiser patient at that hospital. So in many ways, thank you for, for helping being part of the team that takes care of me. So I appreciate that. I must tell you, they're extraordinary people at the Kaiser Permanente system. And not only are they extraordinary, they have an extraordinary collective in terms of how they integrate physical medicine with other components of health, as well as, of course, the physicians in the hospital system. So pleased that our students and our faculty and our trainees all get exposed to it and be part of it. You know, in terms of health inequities, you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk about this, especially this summer with what happened with all the racial injustice and violence and, and then the subsequent protests and outbursts around wanting equality and justice. What are some initiatives that Drexel has taken on in light of that and then plans to continue on in, in the months and years ahead? Well, we had a real challenge at Drexel with the bankruptcy and subsequent closure of the Hahnemann Hospital. It was a safety net hospital in the middle of center city, Philadelphia, and it really served an underserved population. And Drexel University has always been committed to the city, as well as to these populations that really need support and impact. And so we were able to partner with Tower Health, a healthcare system that's based in Reading, which is a kind of a rural area of Pennsylvania, and purchase St. Christopher's Hospital for Children out of bankruptcy. That's a hospital that's in North Philadelphia, a place where there are a lot of people who've been underserved and frankly, economically challenged a very diverse community. And so we've decided to focus in on providing excellent care, providing community networking. And we just recently partnered with the city of Philadelphia to provide COVID-19 testing. And our goal is to also provide vaccinations so we can be both proactive in terms of taking on the challenges and the, frankly, the underrepresentation of that group in COVID testing, but also highlight opportunity for health and proactive approaches with vaccinations and hopefully taking on the rest of those social determinants of health, um, which are clearly so important to the outcomes of people there. We're doing the same thing in Reading and in rural Pennsylvania, and we want to extend that model to all the facilities in our areas, both in the Northeast and on the West Coast. So that's a key component is being into the communities, providing healthcare, but also recognizing these other opportunities impact the community. Can you mind walking me and our audience through what happens when you identify a hospital that's maybe just barely making it, maybe about to go under? What are the things that get put into place to help that hospital survive so that the patients that are relying on that don't suffer? 
that's a really good question and, and sometimes difficult. You know, I've been able to serve in hospital systems that had a public mission. I started off at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles. This is an LA County hospital affiliated with UCLA, but serves people in that South Bay that really have had challenges. And clearly one of the things that we did when I was at Harbor, one, I got great training there, but then I also took over the ambulatory care clinic out of the emergency department. So we literally had the challenge of all these walk-in people who frankly weren't insured. Many of them were undocumented. All of them were in need. And so working with the county in order to provide support, sometimes highlighting critically where the shortages were, and then thinking about how we would take those academic advancements out of UCLA and start to apply to that population. And what was so amazing about that is that led to research endeavors that I took in, but also a real investment by various groups around Los Angeles in that hospital and in that mission. And it made me think about other systems. And I was in Denver, where again, associated with both a state public hospital at the University of Colorado, as well as a city hospital, Denver General, which became Denver Health Medical Center. And again, working with local governments and state governments became key. Being an advocate for these populations that are underserved, highlighting where those gaps are, and then finding solutions frequently through innovation that would be applicable. Similarly, we had that challenge in North Carolina, at the University of North Carolina, working with state governments. But it's been amazing working with these private hospitals and the challenges they face. You know, I was at Duke University, a private hospital, and we really were working to take on the challenges of an underserved area of Durham, North Carolina. And Duke really responded not only with investment and with innovation, but it had to be directed. And we needed to make that case of how that would be impactful. And then frankly, being in Philadelphia, there aren't public hospitals in Philadelphia major American city with a lot of challenges, with no public hospitals. And I think the Hahnemann Hospital closure highlights the challenge of not having government support. This is a discussion we have amongst the deans of the medical schools in Philadelphia about how are we going to preserve that public service mission? How are we going to highlight the challenges that we see? But how are we going to have an impact on those patients that are being served? And that's an ongoing challenge. It's easy to spot where these problems are going to be. It's going to be in an area where people are poor. It's going to be in an area uh, where people are underserved by medicine. It'll be an area where outcomes and health inequities are obvious, decreased life expectancy, high levels of chronic disease, low levels of proactive health approaches like vaccinations. And that really gives you an idea of, of where the challenges are. And then the need to step up to support those hospitals, I think could be served by these academic partnerships if we focus on innovation and we focus on really making a meaningful difference in the outcomes of people and populations served by those hospitals. So there are lots of challenges out there in medicine. There are lots of challenges in terms of serving populations, but I do think there are opportunities for us to use innovation to effectively address those challenges. I think one thing that you've made very clear is that you spent time in Harbor, you've been in North Carolina, you've been in Philadelphia, you've been kind of all over the place. And when a person does that, I think you naturally bring with you a lot of that cross-pollination. I'm almost imagining you like a bee or a butterfly kind of cross-pollinating flowers in different parts of the country with knowledge, right? And kind of sharing things that work and things that didn't work. And so I think that it's wonderful that you're doing that. I appreciate that you've done that in your career. Well, I think there's so much value to experience. But, you know, experience needs to be applied in the future. I mean, I say research with impact is innovation. 
Well, I think experience with learning and application is innovation. And so that's one of the things that I have learned throughout my career is I moved from my specialty to broader kinds of views of medicine as I viewed from research in a laboratory to research across populations. And I was started with education of individual medical students and thought about systems of education and training and how those would apply to communities. You begin to realize this can be done. They're daunting, large challenges. But if you think about them based on what's worked, when you think about basing them on experience and opportunity, then I really think you can have impact. And I'm proud of my record in all those places and being able to apply it. That doesn't mean we solved all the problems. And that doesn't mean that the problems aren't big and the gaps remain. They clearly, clearly do. But I do think it's one of the things in my career I've really tried to focus in on and really tried to keep going as part of my own personal development. With that in mind, I guess I'd like to close with any sort of knowledge gap that you'd like to fill or maybe some general advice or maybe a combination of the two specifically aimed at folks that are just kind of coming into their own in their healthcare career, whatever that might be. Well, first of all, follow your passion. I think that following your passion is wonderful because I've been able to integrate my passion for clinical care and emergency care, and then couple that with science and research interest, and then couple that with the ability to organize others to focus in on those problems and education and training and research, and then lead to broader organizations it's all the same passion, just different manifestations. And I think the other thing to do is to keep an open mind. I think that it's easy to say, but sometimes hard to do, especially in medicine. You know, I remember during my training, we had weeks that were 100, 120 hours. I remember being audited one time early in my faculty career to one of these formal government audits. And uh, I was shocked to find I spent 112 hours one week and then 118 hours the next week. And you realize you're working really hard, but always remain open to how you might follow another path, how you might be able to expand your opportunity, but most importantly, how you might be able to enhance your impact. And when you start doing that, you'll start finding other collaborators outside of your field that can help. You'll start working with organizations that you thought wouldn't partner with you. And you start being able to then bring new resources, new energy, and new opportunity, and then leverage them for impact. So I would say most certainly follow your passion, keep an open mind. And my last piece is be optimistic. It's amazing the advances that are occurring in medicine and science. It's extraordinary how many people share this vision for the future of a better life, longer life, higher quality life. And it's extraordinary when you start talking to people and finding where they value those intersections, how much an impact you can have on an individual, much less a population. So I think that's the advice I have. But obviously, I look forward to working with people who figure things out faster than I do and better than I do and will have more knowledge than I do. And I think that's the best part of keeping a long-term vision. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. And that's a, it's a wonderful, positive and upbeat note to end on. So thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Cairns. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate, Rishi, the opportunity to, to speak with you and uh, appreciate what Osmosis is doing. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Thank you. 
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.